Welcome to Hustle Up's The Big Break, where we talk to showrunners, directors, executives, and other talented people working in the entertainment industry about how they got their start and what they've done to fast forward their creative careers. I'm H. Schuster, the founder and CEO of Hustle Up, and now an aspiring podcaster. Uh, we'll see how this goes, but I haven't quit my day job yet. Uh, today, I'm chatting with one of the busiest guys in show business. Jimmy Fox is president of Main Event Media, a three-time Emmy-winning production company based in Los Angeles, and also a Hustle Up partner. Join us for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Today, I'm breaking it down with my longtime friend, Jimmy Fox, president of Main Event Media, a religion of sports company and executive producer of Netflix, Dated and Related and Girl in the Picture, United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell, Peacock's comedy series, Punky Brewster, HBO Max's Sweet Life Los Angeles, Discovery's Shark Week, Amazon's Inside Jokes, and family favorite Top Elf, among others. Main Event has won three Emmy Awards and produces across scripted and unscripted genres. Their shows have been nominated for Critics' Choice, TCA, PGA, NAACP, and IDA Awards. And previously, Jimmy was EVP of Objective Media, an all-three company, and head of development at Electus, founded by Ben Silverman. Jimmy's worked with a range of celebrities, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Bear Grylls, Sofia Vergara, and Dog the Bounty Hunter. And Jimmy is a prolific podcaster, hosting Unscripted and Unprepared. Now I'm not nervous at all. Welcome, Jimmy Fox, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, oh. H, you didn't tell me there was going to be a studio audience. I, I thought it was just going to be you and I on Zoom, and here we walk in, and there's this whole group of people here. Now, have you gotten any angry phone calls from our my, my TV uncle, Howard Owens? Because now there's two H's in the business, There's right? two H's in the business. Uh, uh, you know, when I was at Reveille, uh Nay Shine, um, or Shine Nay Reveille, uh Howard, you know, it used to be big H and little H we would often get called. <laughs> Uh, and, and I, I don't know, I don't know if you really want to be little H. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you do. Uh, it's, it, it worked out though. Uh, you know, there are worse people to, uh, to have as a, a namesake, I suppose. Right. I, uh, okay. Speaking of speaking of namesakes and only the reality TV audience will even care about this anecdote. But the other day I'm calling, uh, Michael Kagan, you know, power, power agent, reality agent, Michael Kagan. Now power manager, right? Now. Yes. Now power manager at range. So I, I call him, I leave word, the assistant calls me back and says, hey, I have Michael Kagan for you. And she says, before I put you on, I just want to confirm, are you calling for the unscripted Michael Kagan? And I go, is there uh, is there another Michael Kagan? And she goes, yes, there is a scripted Michael Kagan. And I go, I want the Michael Kagan that works at range. And then she goes, both Michael Kagans work at range. <laughs> Can you imagine being at a company with someone with the same first and last name? In this, in, in That would be, I, I couldn't do it. Neither of them is a Mike. Like what they should have said to Kagan was, you can join Rage Media, but you're going to have to go by Mike. Like from now on. That's, that's what I had to do. I When I sold treadmills, okay? When I sold treadmills over the phone, I really did this. Um, this was before I got the CAA. Um, I was selling treadmills and the owner of this treadmill warehouse, whatever website, his name was Jim. And he's like, hey, what's your middle name? And I go, 
Brian. And he's like, all right, from now on, you're JB. When you get on the phone with people, you're JB. And everybody just started calling me JB because they didn't want the callers to think they were talking to the owner of the company when they got on the phone with me to sell them a treadmill. And I just donned this whole like new treads, treadmill salesman, like alter ego named JB. And I was that guy. You should have built a whole character around it. You know, a stumpy little cigar and a pork pie hat. You could have gone all in. Oh yeah. I'm like, I'm like, what do I do now? Do I, do I grow out the chest hair? Do I wear like a velour jumpsuit every day in the office? <laughs> well, I mean, so what are, we, what are we doing here? What can we talk about? Okay, so you and I were in adjacent offices at all three when you were running Objectives U.S. Business, and then you launched your own company, Main Event Media. Tell me what it was like to go from being an executive for someone else's company to running your own shop. I started at... NBC working for Ben Silverman. That's how I started working for Ben. And then after I got to NBC, Ben left and started his production company, Electus. And he immediately just threw me in the deep end and I was running development from day one, never having had produced before, but having a lot of gumption and a lot of uh, naivete, which sometimes can be your, your greatest strength. Both good resume Thinking, skills. That's right. Thinking, I mean, for, but for me though, when I got that moment, like when I got off Ben's desk at NBC and we were starting the production company, that to me really did feel like the culmination of like everything I had dreamed for, like my whole adolescence. Like I always wanted to work in entertainment. I always thought I had ideas. Um, I always thought that, you know, if I just got the opportunity, I could package and, and develop and sell and produce the same way I watched Ben and Howard and all those other Reveille alumni do it. And so I did that for four years at Electus. And then it was kind of time for me to, you know, get out off the uh, the Ben Silverman uh, hamster wheel, uh, you know, which was amazing. But it was kind of time for me to prove to myself that I can sell shows based on it's Jimmy Fox producing it, not just Ben being my 800 pound gorilla with his name on it. Ben everything. and Howard are forces to be reckoned with. I mean, no, nobody pitches oh, better than the greatest than salesman, that. greatest salesman there are. And I don't, and I don't mean salesmen like in a, like with no derision, like they are just incredible in a room. They're, they're some of the greatest room generals, as I call them, that we've, we've ever seen in the business. And I, and I got to, you know, study at the right side of him for, for years, but I really wanted to prove to myself that I could do this on my, on my own and that people would start to know who I am as an individual, not just Ben's guy. So I, I came to all three media, and at the time, our buddy Eli Holzman was running all three media America, who is now overseeing Sony reality after having sold his company twice over. Uh, Stephen Lambert was also co-running. That's the way to do it. Mark Burnett has now yes. sold his company, I think, like four times. Yes, the same company. Clearly, that's the way to go. Why sell once when you can sell four times? They've, I mean, they've done well for themselves. By the way, fun fact, Mark Burnett and I share a birthday. Do you really? We do. And I think I told him that once, and I don't think he cared. <laughs> you didn't get a card. You did not get a cake. <laughs> no, I don't, get, I don't get a text. I don't get anything on our birthdays. But no, so I, I got to all three, and, and Eli Holzman was like, hey, man, look, I, I, I didn't know you did as much scripted for Ben as you've done. And he's like, you kind of do both. And it was very important to me that I continue to do both. So... Uh, Objective Productions was a company that all three had acquired years earlier, and they had yet to open up a U.S. office. So they said, look, we have this amazing company in the U.K. I think you'd love these guys. They do these incredible comedies in the U.K., like Peep Show and Fresh Meat. Um, they later would do Toast of London with, with Matthew Barry, um, who, Matt Barry, who's amazing. 
but they also did all these reality formats, like all the Darren Brown magic formats, um, the cube, all these other shows were theirs. And I was like, that would be a dream because I could come in from day one and not just have it be ideas off the top of my head. Like there would actually be a catalog that I could try to exploit here in the U S that hadn't really been exploited yet. And that was the gig. So I yeah. came in and I did that for a, a couple of years. Um, and all the objective folks were just lovely. And then Jane and Sarah, the global heads at all three, one day were like, look, you're doing a great job selling your own stuff. Cause I really started to sell my own ideas and package my own ideas. They were like, look, you're doing, you're doing great stuff. Let's just give you your own label and just give you a little bit more autonomy. Um, you know, being, being out outside, just objective only slate. And that's what happened. So main event media is the company name I came up with. It was, uh, it was an ode to me growing up a big uh, pro- professional wrestling fan and watching Saturday night's main event. Sure. Uh, but sure. Uh, main event media is what I called the company. And uh, we did that for many years at, at all three. I was at all three for a total of nine years. That's a long time and, for anybody in this I, business to be anywhere. But they were, they were smart, well, right? They were smart enough to help you grow because that's a great way to keep an amazing producer uh, at the company, right? Yeah. I mean, they were so good to me. They were so good to me. They gave me every opportunity. They let me package and sell and pitch anything that I, I believed in. And Jane and Sarah, the global heads were incredible. And it was, it was, it was the most amicable because I just left, you know, I just left. This is breaking news somewhat. Um, I think we just announced this, but I, my home main event is now a a religion of sports company, which we can get into in a second. But I can tell you after nine years there, it was the most amicable exit like Jane and Sarah were so happy for me that I found an opportunity that I was really excited about to, you know, bring my company over to religion and sports. And it doesn't always go that way. So I feel really fortunate for, uh, they were the same way with me when I left, when, when I left all three, they were so good to me. So kind. That's the way to run a business. Be good to people because we're all repeat players. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about religion of sports. Re- religion of sports, uh, is probably known as the most preeminent, production company in the business for premium sports documentaries. It's the company founded by Tom Brady, uh, who you may have heard of. He's done well for himself uh, as an athlete. Uh, Michael Strahan, Michael Strahan, who's done a great job of, uh, you know, crossing over to mainstream over the years uh, as a pop culture figure. And Gotham Chopra, uh, who's a brilliant director, filmmaker. Uh, They founded the company years ago. Uh, they have made documentaries with, again, the biggest figures in sports, um, Simone Biles, Steph Curry, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant's muse. They've worked with LeBron, uh, and they just got financing, uh, from Shamrock to expand the studio. Uh, so what you're going to see, uh, me being one of the first, but what you're going to see over the next year plus is them growing the studio, uh, by bringing in companies like myself, that will help the studio expand beyond just the world of sports. Um, so, you know, there will be others that you read about, but they basically brought me in to kind of run the pop culture, uh, true crime uh, wing of the religion of sports studio. So main event is still my company, but it's now a religion of sports backed uh, enterprise. That's super cool. And, and I mean, you love sports, right? So it's not so crazy that you would be part of a company that started in sports, but it sounds like you'll continue to be able to make all kinds of content scripted, unscripted across, across genres. 
Absolutely. I mean, they've been they've been really good to me. That when they recruited me, they said, "Look, we're specifically recruiting you because you don't do sports. Like, we know we need to move into the worlds of format and docu series and true crime and scripted and everything else that you've done over the years." So basically, they're like, "Look, keep doing what you're doing, kid. You know, and and if you want to do sports, that's low hanging fruit." So yep. I do have some sports adjacent projects because I am a huge sports fan. So I'm just like. I'm just like, I can't believe that this is where, where I've landed because when I was in college age, I, I thought I was going to be a sports broadcaster. I thought that was it. I was cutting, I was cutting a demo tape. Um, I hosted my own sports show in college. I announced like as the public address announcer, I announced like the basketball and volleyball and softball games. I played football myself in college. Like that it's been my passion in my whole life, but well, and now let's let's go back in time. Let yeah. Jimmy Fox, this is your life, right? Because you got your sort of uh, your 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 first start, right, as a small town radio host in like the Central Valley of of California, right, at like yeah. sixteen or something. So you've known for a long time, and now you're a podcaster, right? So 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 what's that like to be the talent, right? So you're a producer, but you all do you write your own writers? Do you give yourself green M and M's? I, yeah, I mean, I, I started this, the podcast I do now is for uh, Real Screen Magazine. And I started that years ago. I started when I first left Ben, going back what we talked about earlier, when I left Ben talking about how I wanted people to get to know me as an individual and not just lump me in with like, oh, that's just Ben's guy. I went to the folks at Real Screen who throw the biggest reality TV conference, you know, in the business and they put out a, a magazine, obviously that deals in the unscripted business. And I went to them and I said, Hey, do you guys have a podcast? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, I'll do it for free. Like, I just want to have conversations with people I respect in the business. Cause I, I love that. I, you know, totally. I'm a, I'm a nerd about this stuff. Like the only books I read and I'm not a good reader, but the only books I do read are nonfiction books about the entertainment industry. And I'm like, look, I'll just have conversations with reality TV executives. I'll put them out once a month ish. If, if I'm good about it. And they let me do that. And that was my, that was my strategic way of saying, I'm about to go start my own company for the first time in my life. I'm not going to have Ben's juice behind me. I'm going to do this podcast. Number one, so people know who I am and they get to know me. But number two, it's going to put me in a room with some really great individuals and some buyers um, as well. So smart. Yeah. I mean, I look, I cut to years later and I'm at the real screen conference in front of a packed house and I'm I'm doing a one on one with you know John Murray. He's an absolute you delight. Know, you know, and it's like, what am I? What? Oh, oh my God! I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, what am I doing here? And why am I the guy talking to John Murray, like Hall of Famer John Murray? You know, um, I have to ask. Like, I have to. I, I want to go back in time, and because you know it's the name of our show, yeah. so I have to ask. What was your kind of big break moment? Like going past sort of the radio career in in high school and college, when you really started to break into yeah. TV. What, what was the path? What was, how did you kind of do it? Right. Because that's really, that's what everybody yeah, wants to well, know. Right. People show up in LA by the, by the, by the, the, the droves, you know, they put all their stuff in the trunk of the car. They show up here, they're sleeping on their buddy's couch in Silver Lake. Uh, and they're trying to figure yeah. out how to make this happen. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, quickly. I mean, with the radio thing and I was in high school and here's what I've learned. And this is, this will go back to just in terms of your audience and what people can glean from, our shared experiences age. Cause I think that's the purpose of this podcast, right? Is, is 
how to equate what we've been through to how people can apply it to their path, right? I No one's ever going to do it for you. I was in high school in Santa Cruz, California. It's a, it's not a, it's not a market. And I knew I wanted to work in entertainment, but I could, you know, I might as well have been in Alaska, you know, like we weren't in LA. It was Santa Cruz, California. And I'm like, and I, and, and it, literally as a teenager, I'm already having, and this is me because I'm an anxious human being that is always thinking forward. I'm thinking I'm never, how am I ever going to achieve any of my dreams of working in entertainment when I live here? Like I'm in Santa Cruz and I'm not, and I'm not thinking, oh, you could like go to college in LA dipshit. Like, I'm not thinking that at the moment. I'm thinking I'm in high school. I have to be doing something now. I'm wasting time not doing something now. I literally got a phone book. I grabbed the yellow pages that my mom had and I was like, okay. We're going to have to drop TV a little station? note and post about what a phone book is. Yeah. We'll explain what that is. Luckily, this is actually post-internet kids. There were phone books still around, but the internet did exist then. And I, I looked up like what TV stations or radio stations even exist in my area. And it turns out there was one, actually two, one was the college radio station at UCSC. The other was a radio station called KSCO, which was an AM talk radio station, which syndicated like Dr. Laura, I think maybe Dr. Laura, and I can't remember now, but there were some other days. I think they might even had Rush Limbaugh maybe. But in the morning, there was a morning show called Good Morning Monterey Bay. It reached all the way from like Monterey, all the way to like maybe like San Jose-ish, 10,000 watt radio station. And I literally just wrote them a letter and I said, hey, I'm a high school kid that wants to work in entertainment. My heroes are Vin Scully, you know, and, and others. And uh, I'll, I would love to help out at the station however I can. You don't need to pay me. I will, I will sweep floors. And they call me. And before I know it, I'm like an intern, a minimum wage paid intern working a couple hours every morning at the morning show. And then they got me on the air. And they made and and by the time I left two years later, I was the official sports and traffic guy on the morning show. And they had given me my own show on Saturday nights, um, where it was my first time ever to produce and pitch my own ideas and and make something happen. So wh what I learned from that was this is, this is about you, but like I did the same thing. I was in a public high school in New Jersey, right? And I'm like, you know, what what am I gonna? I know I want to be in, in entertainment and show business, and I was on like the school paper and in the theater group and stuff, but. I drew a cartoon, a comic strip, right? I, I was I was obsessed with Bloom County and Doonesbury and and Calvin and Hobbes, and I drew my own cartoon strip about a, a hippie dad uh, and his '80s Reaganite son, uh, not unlike Family Ties, which was a sitcom at the time. And and they yes, were yes. they were in this sort of headlock, uh, you know, th th this sort of you know uh, 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 strained relationship. The the uh, the mom had gone to prison for uh, insider trading, so it was just the hippie dad and the son. And I, I wrote this whole cartoon strip. So I decided I'm going to go to the local newspaper because in those days there were, there were town newspapers, but they were often owned by one syndicate, right? It would be like the Ridgewood news and the Glenrock news and the, you know, and they would come out. And so I decided I would go and I would show them my cartoon strip and say, do you guys want to do something with this? And I remember my mom drove me there to the newspaper office and like, she pulls up and she's like, listen, I just, you know, it's not going to happen. Like she's just like trying to like manage my disappointment. She's like, she's like, let me just like, you know, help you now. Like I, this is a long shot, you know? I'm like, yeah, no, I know. And I had like one of those like black, you know, like portfolio bags that I have bought like at like Woolworths for like oh my know, 35 cents. And I go in and I unzip it. It's like made out of like cardboard and I open it up and I'm, I'm putting my, and you know, I drew them on like eight by 11 sheets of paper. Like, you know, and I'm like, here they are. And then, yeah. and then the assistant editor is like, 
these are really funny. These are really good. Yeah. You know what? How about if we give you 50 bucks a cartoon strip and we'll run them like every day. And, uh, you know, how many can you do? I'm like, I can do like five a week. They're like, great. And then, and so I got this syndicated cartoon strip in all these local newspapers around New Jersey. Oh my God. I never knew this. I had no idea. I didn't even know. I didn't even know you were an artist. I didn't know you and Green. You and Greener I managed to, to eke it out, and and uh, the writing was better than the artwork. Let's not kid ourselves. But but then I walk out. I get in the car, and my mom's like, "Yeah, so you know, and I'm like, "Yeah, so they're gonna pay me fifty dollars a cartoon strip." And it bought me my first car. It bought me. It bought me my first car. So you know the. I did. I had no idea you had that artist side of you, like you and Adam Greener. Like I had no idea this was a thing. Yeah, Greener is going crazy. He's got. He's had gallery shows, and like I, I'm like, yes. you know, when we were at all three together, I kept saying to him, Adam, I want to buy a piece. I want because I really love his art. Uh, and I was like, I want to buy a piece. And now I'm like, I think I'm priced out. Like I, I don't think I can afford an Adam <laughs> Greener original anymore. This is crazy. All right. So the big break. So the big break. Um. So the the actual the actual big break, uh, in entertainment. If I had to narrow it down to one opportunity, I, uh, at a school, I started working for Gersh agency. I hated it. I quit after two weeks, but I put in two weeks notice. <laughs> so I actually, I, I literally did that. I worked there for a month. Um, and then I was on my buddy's futon sleeping in Silver Lake and I had no job. I had no job for months and I felt like a complete failure because at my college, I was like a big fish in a very small pond. And now here I am in LA and I'm sleeping on a futon and I got no gig and nobody gives a shit about me. Not, and they, and they shouldn't cause I'm just one of many, many people that wants to work in entertainment. So I eventually get like a PA job through like some contact. I get a PA job, uh, working for Halleck and Healy on, um, a couple of their shows, which they were the production company behind scare tactics. And they did all these like wild classic early two thousands, like Fox reality TV, like big swing type shows that you, lawyers would never let you do now. They were, they were like the Kings of those shows and hidden camera shows. I got a PA job. And then eventually Rhodes, after being a PA and a casting assistant on reality TV sets, like biggest loser and beauty of the geek. And then I had like a little stint doing football stunts on Friday night lights, the pilot and this movie gridiron game with the rock. After I kind of did all that stuff, I, I realized I'm like, look, I'm never going to become a TV executive or a producer if I don't suck it up and go back to being an agency assistant. After that awful Gersh experience I had, I, 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 I was smart enough now having done PA jobs and realized there's indoor cats and there's outdoor cats. And the business kind of separates you between the two. And if you've been a production assistant and that's all they see on your resume, they're never going to let you become an indoor cat. They're never going to let you be an assistant on a desk or go work at a network or a studio because they view you as production. And I learned that early on. So I'm like, God damn it. I got to go back to an agency. So I end up getting an assistant job, right? Because the pigeonholing starts like that that early, right? I mean, yes, it's it's it is interesting the degree to which it's challenging when you get on a track in this business, right? And and I want to talk about that with regard to scripted and unscripted too, because you've done both. Yeah. But 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 continue. So you go back and you, yeah. you get an ag- an agency assisting job. Right? Yes, I, I end up getting a job at CAA, and luckily I end up working for this boss agency jobs are all about the the desk you cover and the boss it's not really the agency and andrew miller was a tv lit agent i think he was around like 28 or 29 at the time and i was like i don't know 24 or 25 at the time something like that maybe 23 at the time and we just got along great he played baseball at michigan he's like an encino kid you know like we totally hit it off but I got some great advice around this time in my life. I got some great career advice that I I pass on to people, which is somebody told me 
find the one person in the business that most represents the career that you want to have and go work for them. And if you can't go work for them, try, right? Try. Try to get around their company. Try to work with somebody that works around them, right? And through a general meeting uh, with somebody else um, that I got acquainted with, somebody in some meeting was like, oh, well, explain to me what you want to do. And I explained to them what I wanted to do, which was, I want to work in scripted, but I'm not a writer. I want to work in reality TV, but I'm not like an executor. You know, I'm more of like an idea person. I'm a collaborator. I'm a packager, you know. Um, They're like, oh, it sounds like you want to be a Ben Silverman. And I was like, yeah, I want to be a Ben. own category. It's a Ben Silverman. Yeah, that's what this guy said. And, And the guy could tell I didn't know who Ben Silverman was. He's like, go home and look up Ben Silverman. Uh, you know, he produces The Office and Ugly Betty and Biggest Loser and Nashville Star, but he also produces The Tudors on Showtime with John with Jonathan Reese Myers. So I was like, holy crap, that that's the career that I would dream for. This guy's one, he was like the only guy in town at the time that was doing both scripted and unscripted and doing both very well. And Ben's whole business model was all yeah. about international rights. He was one of the first people really to figure out that you could go to other territories and find these great pieces of IP that weren't being traveled around the globe yet. And so the Tudors and the office and ugly Betty were all shows from other territories that Ben had the vision and the taste to see that they were creatively brilliant shows that he could translate for a U.S. audience. That's right. So taking that in mind, right? So here I am at CAA. And I've established that Ben Silverman and his company Revely is like the place I want to work at next after I pay my dues at the agency. So again, it's another lesson of nobody's going to do it for you. So what do I do? Well, I'm at CAA. We work with Revely on trying to send them writers for all their sitcoms and shows that they're trying to set up at their universal deal. So I make friends with every assistant at Revely. I call them like, hey, like I'm, we cover you guys. Andrew Miller covers you guys for CA. Like, should we get drinks sometime? I do drinks. I do lunches. And I get to know every assistant at Revely and I tell them. I'm like, look, whenever there's another assistant opening at the company, just let me come interview for it. Any, any, I don't care if it's for the manager development. I don't care who it's for. If there's any openings at Revely, let me know. The assistant network is a mighty one, right? Like if there's one yeah. reason to be an assistant in this town, I think it is because you become, this is your class, if you will, yeah. right? That you come up with, right? Yeah, well, the, the, the cliche is true. Like agency's uh, currency is information. So when you work at an agency, you kind of hear about everything yeah. early. And because they represent all the showrunners in town, you hear about job openings that are going to be on these shows. Or you yeah. hear about the writer's assistant jobs because they rep those head writers. So yeah, the, like when you're when you're working at an agency as an assistant, it really is like a continuation of college. It's like a bunch of young 20 somethings that all live on the same floor. They all go to, they all go to the same parties. There's a new party every week, whether it's a, this person's getting promoted or this person's birthday or this person's leaving the company. Like there's parties every week you're all going to, you all know each other. Right. And you all commiserate about the professors, which are your bosses or whatever. So I made friends with the Revely assistants and it just so happened 10 months into my stint at CAA, Ben was looking for an assistant. So so I interviewed and I went through three rounds of interviews and I was told it was down to me and one other guy. And I didn't hear for a long time. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then one day a buddy of mine, CJU, who I'm I'm about to have on my podcast, who's now at Amazon, CJU says, hey, you know, um, 
I know people at Mark Burnett's company, and I think Roy Bank, who's running the company, uh, is looking for an assistant. Do you want to interview? I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I may never hear from Reveille or Ben Silverman. So I take this interview, and I'm sitting with Roy Bank, and Roy Bank is like a force of nature too. And he is. he is now. Did did he interview you at the office or in Malibu? Where was the interview? What was the what was where was this the was, meeting? This was at the what was the Burnett office in like the that Bell Arish just off the four or five. Yeah, office. the low slung former strip mall. Yeah, I, I used to refer to it as the Death Star. Yeah, you, you remember those interviews, H? Like you'd go in for those job interviews and like your first time walking into somebody else's office and you're the posters, like the power of a poster. You know, yeah, you're looking around when you get to like drive onto oh, the lot, oh. the, the grandeur. I still, I still get that way. I still, every time I go on a lot, I'm like, when I made Punky Brewster, are you kidding me? I was like, yeah. I was just an assistant here at NBC a handful of years ago up in that tower. And I'm looking up at my window. I told Soleil Moon Fry this one time, like we're about to shoot the scene on the back lot. And I'm like, you see up that window, like way up there. That's where I was an assistant for Ben Silverman. And now I'm down, <laughs> and now I'm down here, executive producing Punky Brewster for NBC. So I, I interview with Roy and Roy says, look, I understand that you've interviewed at Reveille and you're waiting to hear back. And I go, well, yes, that's true. He goes, tell you what, I'm just going to text Ben Silverman right now because I'm good friends with Ben. I know all those guys. I'm just going to text him right now. In the middle of my interview with Roy, he is going to text the other company that I've interviewed for. And he goes, are you going to, and he's like reading it out loud as he texts to Ben. He goes, are you going to hire Jimmy Fox? Because if you don't, I am. And then he puts his phone down and then we talk like football for like a couple minutes because he's a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. We talk Eagles and then his phone buzzes and he reads it and he looks at me and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell is going on right now? He goes, they're going to offer you the job tomorrow. So what do you want to do? So now I came in to this meeting with no job offers and somehow I'm leaving one interview with two job offers. And what did I do? I squirmed my way out of it. I, I, I told Roy, well, I'd really like to take the night to think about it because you've been so amazing and so gracious. And he's like, great, think about it. I go back to my car. I turn on my cell phone and there's a message waiting for me magically from Ben Silverman, who I have not heard from for months. And, <laughs> and the message is, Jimmy Fox, Ben Silverman, give me a call, buddy. And I called him back that night. He offered me the job. And this is, this is why it's the big break. I thought I was going to be working for the head of Reveille, a very successful production company. I end up starting on a Monday for Ben. I don't even talk to him the whole week because I'm just shadowing the assistant. Like I'm literally just sitting watching Matt Vassallo, who's amazing and I owe a lot to. Matt, Matt's like a big reason I got the job in the end. And um, that and the leverage I now had. It was my first, it was my first lesson in leverage. I, uh, I start on a Monday. I don't even communicate with Ben all week. That Friday, I'm driving home and my brother calls me who works in the business. And he goes, Hey dude, I think you're working for the head of NBC now. And I go, <laughs> and I go, what are you talking about? And he's like, go on, go on this website. It's called Nikki Fink. She's really good about this stuff. And she just broke a story that Ben Silverman is the new chairman of NBC. And I, and I never forget it. I tell my brother, I'm like, dude, I've been working for this guy for a week. He's been at like the country club all week. He hasn't come in the office once. He is not the chairman of NBC. <laughs> and, of course, and, of course, and then I went home, I read the news. And then on Tuesday, it was a three-day weekend. I think it broke over like Memorial Day weekend or something. It did. I remember ben, it. Ben calls in the office and I'm the first one in, you know, new assistant. He calls in 
and I've all weekend I've been like, what is going to happen to me? Like, is he actually going to keep me? Is it, it, did he know this all along? Like, what, what what does this mean for me? He calls in and he goes, hey, and I go, hey, and there's just silence. And he goes, do you have any idea what you just got yourself into? And I go, no. What is going on? What is happening? And he never walked me through it. He never explained anything. This is all he said. <laughs> he just goes, welcome to the big time, baby. Let's roll some calls. <laughs> That's that's the way to do it. That's the cinematic. Uh, that's that's the scene in the movie version. Uh, no, I remember that uh, that that period of time really well because I was there as an executive producer at the time, and so you know we all got the call that that not only was Ben going to NBC, but he had sold the company to Liz, right? Because he had to exit, so he sells the company to Shine, goes and becomes chairman of NBC, uh, and then and then that's when I got the offer to go from being an EP to being the SVP of, of creative yeah. internally at the company and made the, the, the leap, as you're saying, from the, the outdoor cat to the indoor cat. Was that the analogy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I went from being, being the, the EP who was the last to know any change in the company, right? I would just get a phone call while I was like out on a scout saying, hey, by the way, you have a new boss now. Uh, and, you know, then I became, became the, the uh, uh, de facto sort of head of un, uh, unscripted uh-huh. uh, answering into Howard. Uh, and so it was a crazy time. It was a crazy. And then, so the value for you of being Ben's assistant, I imagine was twofold. One, obviously the connections and the, the getting to sort of see the insights of the interior of the business, but, but also I'm curious, like, what are the biggest lessons? You know, you've worked with some legendary producers, whether it's Ben or Eli Holzman or others. What are some of the biggest takeaways uh, mm. that, that you have sort of learned about yourself and or about, about the business? Well, I think what I've learned is there's no one way to sell a show, right? There's no one way. And people have their own methods. And you kind of have to find what works for you. You can't try to be something you're not. And I always tell myself, take your weaknesses and turn them into a strength by recognizing your weaknesses and not trying to pretend that you're good at something you're not good at. I think there's a lot of producers, especially people that work at production companies um, or that oversee development at places. I think there's a lot of people that make the mistake of trying to pretend that their strengths lie in a lane over here when they clearly do not. And really you can, you can, you know, try to offer your, your take on things and insights, but at the end of the day, you got to be honest with yourself and realize that there's just better people at that position than you. And you should focus on where, where you, you know, where you're best at. So with Ben, Ben had a way of selling. Eli Holzman had a completely different way of selling in the room. And I've been with, uh, you know, I've gotten to know uh, Anthony Zyker very well over the years who created the CSI franchise and has done very well for himself, but he's also been dabbling in the reality TV business. And I got to take out pitches with him and how he manages a room and how he actually explains, you know, what a show is about Um, because he comes from a scripted background. His take in a room of pitching a reality show was completely different and all three highly successful. Right. So I think you just have to find what works for you. And if it's not working, you don't be afraid to course correct, you know? Um, So, and the art of the pitch is probably the most important element of our business because that's your sales tool. It's, it's just you in the room. What's the craziest pitch you've ever been part of, or or at least a memorable one? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one that comes to mind specifically, which was my last pitch at Electus with Ben, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can get into it. Um, 
I don't, I don't. Okay. You know what? No, I'll tell you my personal worst pitch. Um, my, my, yeah, my, my worst personal pitch. And it's funny cause it's come full circle because this executive who I really resented for a while because of what happened is now somebody I'm very, very friendly with. I, awesome. I, I took in this pitch at a cable network and I was joined by like my agent. And I want to say like, Greg Lipstone may have been in this pitch. I don't know if he was though, but I think it was my agent and a representative of all three was with me in this pitch. And then I met with this person who ran development at a cable network and two of their executives were in the room as well. Conference room. I bring in tape. I have a deck. I walk them through it. It's kind of this high concept format. It's a survival format, this high concept thing where the storyline is kind of told on two timelines, right? And I walk them through it. I, I tape, I do the whole thing. And this executive goes, okay, okay, is that it? Is that it? Is that the pitch? And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm done. She goes, okay, I don't get it. <laughs> and it's just silence in the room. And I go, well, which part don't you get? And she right. goes, you're like, help me help you. Yeah. Ask a question and I she can goes, answer. And she goes, and I'm like, which part don't you get? And she goes, all of it. And I go, okay. Well, uh, this should be a fun next uh, ten minutes. Uh, so then, so then it, it, it took another turn when this person goes, "Let me ask you something. Have you ever done a survival show?" And at, and, and at this point, I'm already like annoyed, right? So I go, uh, "Well, I mean, I've worked at a company that has done these survival shows, so I know all the people you hire." Like, I didn't actually work with Bear Grylls directly. I just met him a couple of times at Electus, um, and I, I didn't. I wasn't point on the Bear Grylls show at Electus, but. I, I was like, I worked at a company in Electus that made Bear Grylls shows, so I know all the people, all the best people that make these shows. And then I go, wait, now let me ask you a question. Is that a prerequisite now for pitching shows in this town? Like, if I've never made a cupcake baking show, can I not pitch a cupcake baking show? Is that now how we're operating in this town? I said this in the room. And she goes, no, 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 look, it's your idea. It's fine. Like, whatever. It's your idea. Like, no, I was just asking. Like, you know, just, you know, if you actually know how to make these things. And it was <laughs> the most awkward, awful meeting I've ever been in and I've never forgotten it. And for years I resented it. And this is the lesson to learn that sometimes, see for me, that was like a traumatizing pitch because I'm already yeah. very insecure. I mean, we're all insecure when it comes to selling. Actually, I don't, yeah. I mean, part of it's insecurity, but part of it's also, I'm just like, you know what it is more so? I'm just very hard on myself. So yeah. every, every pass, every failure, I just, I totally just like, you know, wallow in. I think wallow is the best word. And my wife has to like try to lift me up when I come home at night. Um, <laughs> I took it that way. And, yeah. and I, and I felt that way for years Yeah. for her, for that executive, it was just a Tuesday at two 30. Yeah. It's just one like, more pitch. She didn't she, like, she forgot about that whole experience. Yeah. The second she walked out of that boardroom. And then years later I got in front of her for the first time. I'm like, Oh, how's this going to go? She could not have been lovelier. She was amazing. In fact, I sold a project to her and we made a pilot and the pilot didn't move forward. But when they passed on it, she called me and could not have been nicer and sweeter in how they passed on the pilot. And she's right. like calling me saying, let's get together again. Let's find the next one. You did amazing work on this pilot for us. And it's like, that's the thing. You also never know. Like there's so many times in this business that you think these are the six, seven people I can count on that will help me out in the future. Right. And they don't. And then there's these other people that come out of nowhere yep. that do help you. 
The interesting thing about pitching is that you are sort of at the mercy of the the people in the room who are buying, right? And I think what's interesting having, you know, moved, been on both sides of that, right, is there are buyers out there who have never been sellers, right? A lot of buyers have never been sellers. And I think sometimes like their own frustration with getting things that that aren't the way they hoped they would be, or they feel like promises were broken or whatever it is, it makes them somewhat adversarial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really interesting because that will never yield well. I think rarely yields the best pilot or product, right? And And so like you kind of have to all be in the boat rowing toward the other shore, right? Because yeah. that's how you're going to, you're going to actually find a way to make something hopefully great. Um, yeah. Who's, who's your favorite executive to work with? Who are some of your favorite executives? Oh, to work with? Well, I mean, I, I gotta tell you the, the team at HBO max that is no longer there. Yeah. Jen O'Connell was incredible. is amazing. Oh my God. The whole team, Nicole, sure. Rebecca, Jen, who we worked with closely, Julie, Everybody we worked with when we made Sweet Life, um, the two seasons of Sweet Life we got to make, they were incredible. I mean, the notes they gave were so additive, uh, but they weren't they weren't the notes just for the sake of giving you a note, you know, that sometimes sometimes you get. Um, they weren't the notes that you get because they're scared of their own shadow, which sometimes networks give you because they're insecure in their own position at the network. So they, they know out of fear sometimes, which by the way, I don't blame them considering all the shakeups taking place corporately around, around this business. So often I think the way executives treat external producers is based on the culture of the place they're working. Yes. And their own. And then, oh my God, when we made girl in the picture, our documentary for Netflix, that was like, oh, I've never experienced this before. Like they were so, they, they actually deferred to us. And then I realized, oh, this is actually how documentary people behave. They actually, <laughs> they actually defer to the producers and directors on what might be best. They just give some guidance and notes, but they don't mandate anything. They just say, hey, given our experience and us knowing how document- making some of the best documentaries in the world, here's our thoughts. But this is your film. Coming up in the reality ranks where you have network executives basically saying, do this, do that, change this, change that. And they they pretty much- You get pages of notes oftentimes. And then you, it goes to the next level and you get notes to put it all back self, the way they it They self-produce. They, they will self- Some networks will just self-produce the show and they just want you to be, you know, like the, the arms and legs, but they don't want you to be the brains or the creative. I'll give a shout out to Eli Lair because I love working with Eli. I worked with him at Bravo yeah. and Lifetime- Anywhere Eli goes, I will try to sell because he's a great exec. He's very collaborative. He's very, very pro the creative process. I talked about this on my own podcast um, when I had, uh, who did I have on? I think it was, I think I had Rod Asa on. It was when I had Rod Asa on. I, um, I had him on the podcast and I told him when I made a show for him right at the depths of COVID, uh, we made a series together and we're like in the swing of production. I think we're maybe like, you know, a few days in and we have a couple episodes in the can he just calls me out of the blue. And I'm like, oh, oh shit. Here it comes. Things have been going too smooth. Here we go. What is it? A network exec is calling. Oh God. <laughs> not only like like my 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 exec's exec, like my exec's boss, like Rod is calling me directly. And I'm like, oh damn, here we come. And I go, hey Rod. And he goes, Hey, hey, look, I just wanted to give you a call and I just wanted to like see how things are going for you. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, what do you what do you what do you mean? He goes, I just want to make sure you're happy with the show. Like, is everything okay? Like, are you happy with how my team is 
functioning with you? Are you making the show that you want to make? I was like, Rod, I've never gotten a call like this before. And I, and I'm not, I'm not Craig Belligian. You know what I mean? I'm not Leslie Greif. I'm not Ben Silverman, but I've been doing this a minute now. You know, I have never gotten a call like this. Right. And I told him like, I've never had a network executive actually call me on a reality TV show and ask me, the executive producer and the guy that brought it to you, if I'm happy and I'm getting to make the show that I want to make. And he did that. And that, that always stuck with me. And I, and I was also thinking, why is that such a rare call? <laughs> I got a call like that. It was really meaningful because I, I, I was at Seacrest and we made a, um, a, a show with The Wanted, which was a boy band at the time, a, a UK-based boy band. And we sold it to E. And at the time, Lisa Berger was running E. And she said, I want this to be like an unscripted sitcom. I want you to make the monkeys, right? And I was yeah. like, this is going to be fun, right? We played, we, we did this pilot where we really played with it. We played with the format. We played with how we did the interviews. We had some cool graphics and, you know, we cobbled it all together on like 45 cents, you know, which is the pilot budget that, that you get. Uh, and we turned it in the day before Christmas, the day before everybody was breaking for Christmas, which I think for the way the calendar fell, it was literally like the day before Christmas Eve. And I, I leave the office, you know, because we had just turned it in. I leave the office probably at nine o'clock at night. Uh, and I'm, I'm driving home and my phone rings and I see that it's E and I answer and it's Lisa. And she's calling me from her car driving home. And she says, I just watched it and it's brilliant. And not only did you do everything I asked for, but you over delivered. And thank you so much. Happy holidays. Goodbye. Uh, and I thought for sure I was about to make a U-turn and go back to the office to like make additional changes. Right. Um, and, and that was not the case. And, you know, and, and, and it was, it was really meaningful because Lisa's a tough executive and she was, you know, demanding and she would tell you what she thought and what she wanted. And I loved working with her and like to get that call was meaningful because I was like, she, she's not going to pick up the phone and make that call unless she means it, you know, the power of a thank you, the, yeah. the power of a job well done. Yeah, or an accolade of like, I actually like this, right? Yeah. Goes so yeah. far. Goes so far. There's a great story I heard one time, H, um, where, quick, quick, because we're talking about network notes. Uh, I heard the story of like, at a cable network, th- th- these folks had worked on a, on like a true crime show, and they had turned in the first cut, and this was going to be their first phone call. It's a phone call, like on speakerphone, uh, with the producers, and they're all huddled in a room to get the notes. And the network executive comes on the phone and says, hey guys, look, to start off, just off the jump here, just want to say, you guys delivered us an HBO show. And the producers like put the phone on mute. They start like hooting and hollering, like slapping high fives. Like, yeah, it's like everything you, you like hope and dream for as a reality TV producer working in basic cable for somebody to tell you. So they take the phone off mute and they go, okay, all right. And then the, and then the network executive quickly pivots and goes, yeah, yeah. And we are not HBO, so we need to change everything. <laughs> I was waiting for the punchlines. We don't want an HBO show. No, we are not HBO. We need to change everything because our audience is not that smart. So we need to change everything. Like literally, that was the note. So imagine being a producer who strives to make best in class programming and you've just delivered something to a basic cable network that you think is amazing. And they even tell you this is an HBO show. And then to find out that is all wrong and that you need to dumb this down because the network executive thinks their own audience is not that smart. That's brutal. That's brutal. All right, wait, before we pivot to having some fun talking about the TV that we love watching, um, I want to ask you one last question. It comes back to this this conversation about getting pigeonholed or being in lanes. So you've had a a tremendous success with being able to pivot between scripted and unscripted. I know there are a lot of producers out there that would like to be able to do that or trying to do that. 
Um, how how did that happen for you? I, I know it sort of happened during the time of working for Ben because he was doing that. But how have you continued to be able to develop and pitch in both uh, in, in both genres? I mean, look, here's what I've learned. I, I, I tell people this all the time. I kind of equate producing between scripted and unscripted, like playing roulette in Vegas. Producing reality TV is like betting red or black. Producing scripted as an as a non-writing EP without a studio deal is like hitting a number, right? So that's a great and, analogy. And, the re- and I say that because when you even when you produce unscripted, even when there's a development step. They pay you for the development step, right? Whether it's ten thousand for paper or fifty thousand dollars for a presentation or a big pilot, you're at least getting paid for that. Yep. And when you and when it goes to series, you are making money in the margins, and you're actually physically running the revenue through your company. Right. In scripted, as a non-writing producer, I could I could work with ten different writers in town and be extremely lucky and sell all ten of those pitches. Which, by the way, it takes forever. To, because, you know, just to find the right writer and have someone allow you to get in a room with their writing client is hard enough, right? But then to develop the pitch and take it out and then for the writer then to write the script and turn it in, this could take a year plus until the script actually gets turned in. I could sell 10 scripts and have 10 scripts set up at various networks. I don't get paid. I don't get paid as the non-writing producer until something gets shot. So yep. I have just spent so many hours and and weeks and months on notes calls securing the rights to these projects in the first place. So I even have some IP to bring to a writer doing all of this. And I don't get paid until a pilot or series is shot in scripted. And, and what you realize is when you sell a scripted, a script, you're thinking, Oh my God, amazing. We just sold a script to NBC. But then you realize they bought 50 scripts that development season. Right. And only eight or seven or six might get piloted. And of those, only two or three are going to go to series, right? That is what I talk about by, that, that's why I equate it to hitting a number in in roulette. So for me, like I really, like it's like 80-20 for me. Like 80% of what I do is unscripted. Does a scripted project have to be a passion project or are you looking for things where it's like, hey, there's already packaging, there's already talent, there's already you know a higher hit rate on this number. What's the criteria you use? Yeah, it's it's all IP based because again, like as a non-writing producer who only moonlights in in scripted, really, my only currency is what do I have the rights to? So yeah. with Punky, I had a relationship with um, Universal because I had done a drama series for them called The Arrangement, and that was just like one of those like, you know, I got very lucky. Uh, Universal was good enough to put in an idea, an original idea that I had in production, even though it was like loosely based on like you know, rumors about Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes and Scientology. Great show, by the way. If anyone hasn't watched The Arrangement, go check it out. It's so much fun. Yeah, we, we did two seasons. I'm very grateful. But because of that, um, because of that luck of getting that on the air there, I, may, I had a relationship with the Universal folks. So when I thought of the idea of bringing back Punky Brewster, because I had worked with Soleil on another one of my shows, I called Universal, who had the rights. And I was able to wedge myself in that way and say, look, I've got Soleil. I've got this great take of how to bring it back. You've got the rights. Let me go chase riders with you. And you don't have yep. to spend a dollar. 
until I bring you a writer. And I was able to do that. And Universal let me do that. Um, the other things I have now, they're all IP based. You know, something I have right now that I'm going to take out and, and find a partner on is based on a true story. And, you know, I called the person who kind of works. It's like a sports adjacent story. And I called this individual. I'm like, look, I read about this story years ago. I've always thought it could be a great premise for um, a situation comedy, like a workplace comedy. Are you in? And like, they're in. So I think it's like, don't just think you're going to take like an original idea with with no IP and think you're going to get an agency to help you out when your day job is being a reality TV producer. Like, it's going to be very, very difficult. And access to writers is everything. I think the other thing that I've learned and the reason I love unscripted um, is unscripted nonfiction is a producer's medium. Scripted is a writer's medium. Film is a director's medium. Absolutely. In, in unscripted, we wear all those hats. So in yep. unscripted, I can have an idea on Monday. We can cut a sizzle within two weeks. We could be pitching within a month. And I'm yep. the one pitching it. I'm not reliant on a writer or somebody like that. I'm pitching it. I come up with it. And then when it's time to make the show, it's running through my company. It's a producer's medium. And yes, That's I'm going to need a director. I'm going to need showrunners and whatnot. But it's a producer's medium that drives the show. Um, so that is, again, why I love Unscripted, because of the speed of it and the the uh, hands-on approach that you can take to it. In Scripted, I'm only as good as my writer. I can only do so much as the non-writing producer to move the needle. It's all about the writer when you get into a scripted show. Well, when you're looking for your next scripted project and a, and a story to option, the story of Big H and Little H is definitely available. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about some of the TV you love to watch. This is the best part of the show as far as I'm concerned, because I love hearing what people in the industry are excited about watching. Mm. Now, Jimmy, what are you watching right now? What did you watch over the break? What are you watching as we embark on 2023? I mean, I, I love I, I love The Bear. Uh, I love White Lotus. I love uh, Only Murders in the Building. Um now, are you mostly watching scripted in your spare time or do you watch unscripted? Because I find a lot of unscripted folks watch scripted and a lot of scripted folks watch unscripted. It's like you want to break yeah. from what you're doing. Yeah. Right? You know, uh, yeah, I watch a lot. Of, I watch a lot of scripted. Um, the unscripted I watch is if I'm watching unscripted, it's because I'm with my family and yeah. I've got I've got an eight year old girl and a five year old girl. So you, you understand once you have a family, by the way, why these shows are our biggest shows because the whole family can watch it. Like you understand why America's got talent right. is so successful. You understand why Ninja warrior is so successful because these are shows that the whole family can genuinely enjoy. And I have a theory about this. I want to run this by you because you know, I love to analyze the business and you know, I'm nerdy about this stuff. I feel like reality TV killed the family sitcom on broadcast television. That's I interesting. I think when we grew up, Family sitcoms were something the whole family could watch, right? Now, yes, Disney Channel and Nickelodeon started started making kids-specific multicam sitcoms, yes. But that didn't mean that the broadcast network business had to completely get out of the family broad sitcom that the whole family could watch. What happened was these, these big formats came along like Idol and yep. America's Got Talent and all these other dan uh, Dancing with the Stars, like all these shows that the whole family could watch and they can make those two hour long episodes or yep. hour long episodes as opposed to half hours. And it was less expensive. And they're less expensive and you get more, more hours out of it. And that kind of started to become the broadcast bucket for families. 
and sit and sitcoms really just became more and more. I don't want to say highfalutin, but they became, you know, the single camera comedies became much more narrow in terms of like comedic tone, and yeah, except for like like Modern Family, like there are broad you know single cameras out there, and and the multicams remained very very broad. My eight year old's not going to watch Two and a Half Men, you know. Right. right. Um. So yeah, like. That's interesting because, you know, the other thing is, is like we lost sort of Saturday morning cartoons too, right? So there was like the demise of like, you know, children's programming in in the sort of weekend bucket. And then you're right, the rise of reality TV. That's very interesting. And, you know, it's interesting because when I watch reality TV and, you know, my daughter is like about to go to college, so, so it's a different family dynamic. But I tend to watch the stuff where I feel like it's really character driven. So like I just finished the way down. I don't know if you've seen the way down. I haven't yet. Yeah. I haven't yet. Uh, A woman, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you could say cult leader preacher who ran a church in Nashville. Uh, and, uh, Oh, is this, this is the one that Chrissy Teigen produced for HBO max, right? Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, they had this crazy thing happen where she and her, I don't want to, the spoiler alert where she and her husband and like seven church members, crash in a plane in Percy Priest Lake on takeoff, like right as they finished the the series, right? So yeah. then they had to go back. I guess HBO gave them more money. They went back and they shot another episode as like a coda to it about what's happening to the church now that the leader uh, has been uh, killed, which of course, if the leader were alive, she would say it's because she violated God and God punished her. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a little awkward for the church to, to, to be able to speak to this death. So really, really interesting uh, uh docuseries. Now, okay, what recent show do you wish you had produced? Do you would you look at oh. it and you're like, "Oh man, I would have loved to have made that show." Yeah, I love this question by the way, cuz I I I I think about it all the time. Um yeah, me too. Well, you know, I pitched Mass Singer first. <laughs> Tell us that story. The one that we I, all have the I'm, one that got away story. I'm I'm not going to get it Yeah, it's and look, it's nobody's fault. It's just this is the this is the business we live in like and and it's not even like Oh, I pitched it first. Like I, I sold it. Like I, I pitched it with the format rights holders. I, I sold it to MTV, sold it to MTV. It was in development at MTV. Uh, a new regime came into MTV. And at that point, Mass Singer was just like, just a blurb on their development report. Like we hadn't made anything yet. And the new team came in and killed it. And, and then we got it back from MTV. And for people who don't know, it was a South Korean format that you opted. That's right. And we sold it and we took it around town, but we ended up selling it to MTV. And then when they passed, we, I had, there were people around me that didn't give me the best advice and basically told me, I really loved it. And they told me, you've already pitched it. You've already pitched it around town. You've already pitched all the networks. Like you just pitched it like a year ago. Like we can't package this up and take this back out. And I, and I, and I let it go. Right. Now, Craig Plestis sees Mass Singer one day. I'm going to have Craig Plestis on my podcast, and I'm going to, I can't wait to talk to him about this. I love Craig, and Craig has great stories. He ends up discovering Mass Singer, um, and I'll, that's his story to tell, but he ends up selling it to Fox. Now, had I shared it with Fox? Yes, but um, it was a different regime. It was a different regime. So they saw it, loved it, flipped for it, and the rest is TV history. That doesn't mean I look at Mass Singer now and I'm like, God, I wish I was making it. But I definitely know I'd be in a different place in my career had I done that. Um, I, I there's other shows like America's Got Talent. I, I would I would love um, to be able to say that was our show. Uh, it's always different when you have kids, you know. Also, I was thinking about this. Okay, this is a great question that 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 ties into a question I wanted to ask you. 
Um, also House Hunters, by the way. I think if I made House Hunters, I'd I'd be doing pretty good right now with all the spinoffs and whatnot. Um, I would have sold I would have sold my company. I mean, a big juggernaut series like House Hunters was always a dream of mine when I had my own production company. Mostly because I feel like it presents that challenge of always having to keep the format fresh and interesting, which yeah. is a different kind of challenge than always coming up with a new format. Yeah. I developed and executive produced uh, a series called Tab of the Salon Takeover for Bravo, and we did six seasons of that show. Um, and we, we had to keep inventing the wheel, right? Because initially she was a successful salon owner and hairdresser, so she took over failing salons. And then in later seasons, we were like, okay, well, she's actually a successful small business owner. So let's let's expand this and have her take over all kinds of small businesses and apply her management and marketing wisdom. So she started taking over bakeries and pet groomers because we had to find a way to keep the series interesting and, and fresh over a bunch of seasons. And I can only imagine how the team at Pie Town is thinking about that with, with House Hunters. Pie, yeah, it's, like, it's one of those shows that you don't think about, but then you think about how damn successful it is and how that show will always live on that network. Um, that would be a pretty good show. Like, yeah, and Tara and Jennifer have some pretty nice houses of their own, so I think they've done okay with House Hunters. Well, okay, so let me ask you this because it ties into that. What do you think is the greatest American created format ever? Okay, because when we look at the landscape of the greatest reality formats, they're all, not all, but many of them are international, right? Including yeah. Idol including America's Got Talent, including Shark Tank, which came from Japan. Like, and, and, and look at the broadcast, look at the broadcast uh, spectrum right now of the big shows that work. It's kind of like, like look at CBS, Survivor Big Brother, not American made. Fox, Gordon Ramsay shows, right? All inherited from the UK for the most part. Some are original, but some are mostly UK shows, right? That's what got it going, right? Um, Idols on ABC now, that's a format. NBC, The Voice, not American created, right? Ninja Warrior. MasterChef, not American created. Right. Right. Ninja yeah. Warrior, not American created, yeah. right? ABC might actually have the greatest American created format of all time in The Bachelor. The Bachelor, The Bachelor. I, if you think know. about, think about, think about seasons upon seasons and spinoffs and a legion of fans and a following and breaking through pop culture, The Bachelor house hunters like i know there's others but this is the conversation i want to have with you like they might be the goat american created original formats i mean love is blind is maybe working its way up there in a few years like that has really penetrated pop culture but i don't know maybe you got like some of the cable stuff i'm overlooking like 90 day fiance or married at first sight like i'm, I'm you know there's others but what, do you, what have you thought about this well you know it's interesting right like um when you talk about it, you realize how many of these formats were UK or, or internationally generated and, and brought here. Um, although Mark might argue that Survivor is is OG American, but uh, but I think you know I would say Biggest Loser was a was a format that really broke through and was cultural. And I know you worked on that early in your career, and and I, I obviously was part of the team uh, over at Reveille, but. You know, the thing about Biggest Loser, I think, that was interesting, and, and Mark did this with a lot of his shows, Mark Burnett did this with a lot of his shows, too, is that they not only broke through the pop culture, but they also were um, being leveraged in terms of ancillary products, right? And that made them even more pertinent to our everyday life, right? Biggest Loser was uh, selling knives and cookbooks and weight loss camps and other things. And 
you know, Mark did that to a certain extent with The Apprentice, obviously, uh, and with uh, with the with Survivor, where he actually sold the ad time, right? He actually did did barter time when when he sold it to CBS. And so it's interesting because that's the other interesting difference between scripted and unscripted, right? Is that so much of the early business, it's harder to do now in terms of retaining rights and, and ownership, but so much of the early business was about what you could do with, with uh, the, the ancillary part of the right. show, right? And, and creating these kind of uh, cultural moments around a franchise. So I guess, you know, I, I, it's curious, like the bachelor's never really done that to any great success as far as I know, where they've really been able to leverage the ancillary business of that show, the business of love. Uh, but how, so, but how many formats have they made of it? Like, I don't know enough about, are there bachelors in a million other countries? I don't, I've never looked into this, but I would assume that format has traveled and done pretty well. Hugely exported. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I guess, uh, well, I'm curious, what would be your answer? What's, you would say Bachelor? I, I, I would, look, it kind of goes back to that question of like, what show do you wish you produced? You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. I kind of feel like Bachelor could be one, because ba- Bachelor also feels like it's just like, they've had so many um, publicly discussed events go down on that show and, you know, cast members behaving badly and-, and It's always in the news cycle, always in the Yeah, news reality cycle. TV controversies, and the show just- moves on and and you know what i mean like it feels like it feels like it's just like the the, un, the unsinkable molly brown you know what i mean like that's just what this feels like it's like that with the housewives too right a housewife is always going yeah. to jail they're they're always in the news cycle as well i realize one might not call that a format although no. i would argue it's pretty highly formatted wait wait hold on let's, wait don't skip over that you would call real housewives highly formatted they have a recipe, right? They produce, they produce to a recipe. That's of, for of, that's formula. That's not format. Yeah, it's 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 a formula. Yes, yes, and a right? highly successful one. Right, that's replicated because like I think the format is something that like the audience has to be conscious of in term right in terms of like this is the moment of the show we eliminate. This is the moment of the show we go on dates. This is the moment of the show that like you perform. This is the moment we have judges. Right, like if it's a, not a conscious format point. It can't be for, in my opinion, right? But yes, there is clearly a formula, and it's why we love Housewives. And by the way, a formula that Bravo and specific execs at Bravo did a brilliant job of perfecting. You know, there are, there are a dozen different production companies that make a dozen different versions of Housewives, and yet you look at those franchises as a total, and they all run through the same kind of formula. I would argue Housewives put the final nail in the coffin of daytime soaps. Yeah. Now, I'm curious about what unscripted trends you would say goodbye to, you would like to say goodbye oh. to in the coming year. Oh. What are you tired of? What are you tired oh. of? Seeing? Oh, what am I tired of? Oh, yeah. I thought you meant the things that just, the the, the nature of the business has just like um, executed. I just, like I, I really, I really miss a time where there's just, I talk about this all the time, about how there's just shows that don't get made anymore. Yeah. And there's, and there's so many basic like left of center formats that were clearly just made for the sake of being a great fun reality show that like don't get made anymore. You know, it's like beauty and the geek was one of those shows. Yeah. That was a great format. Beauty and the geek just doesn't sell anymore. Sometimes the, the reality TV business just like institutes these, um, these rules and these mandates, like how they talk about how like, Oh, well you can't like, you can't, you can't script you know, a docu-series and you can't script it. It's like, have you watched Chrisley Knows Best? Chrisley <laughs> Knows Best is a all-out family sitcom. 
highly scripted and it does very well. The note should not be, you can't script. Look at Duck Dynasty. The note should not be, you can't script. The note should be, it better be funny. Because because if it's not funny, yeah, scripting is going to come off really bad for the audience. But the audience has told us time and time again, we do not care if this is scripted as long as it's entertaining. Look at Ms. and Mrs., right? All these shows follow that formula. But sometimes you get these network executives that are like, yeah, but is this really happening in real life? And like, I'm like, the audience doesn't care as long as it's enjoyable. Um, So that's like a trend I'd love to see go. And I'd love to see a time where we can just bring back loud left of center formats that are just made for the sake of being made because they're going to be entertaining. Um, I I miss those days. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I related, I guess what I would like to see go away is, is, uh, is recreations or at least the bad ones, right? Mm, Like mm -hmm. the bad recreations, I feel like we've exhausted that. And I know crime is still a huge genre that everybody is making and consuming, but how do you, how do you get away from the recre? That's, that's my, you know what? I, I, I agree. I agree. I think it kind of falls into that same bucket for me of like, it's all in the execution. Right. And, and when it's done poorly, it is distracting and it takes you out of it. But yeah, I, I feel like in true crime, like we are definitely living in the era of like, just, you know, um, uh, evocative B-roll. You know, it's just like a push down a dark hallway. Horror directors have known that for years, right? The hand on the doorknob is more effective. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I hear you. I hear you shouting out the recrease. Yeah, I hear that. Well, look, we've come to the end of our time, Jimmy. Uh, thank you for sharing all of your amazing stories on on the big break with us. You know, your career is such a great tutorial for our listeners in terms of how to have a really rich and and like diverse career from from a stunt footballer and a mogul's assistant to uh, running your own shop and making all kinds of really cool shows. So I really appreciate you uh, you joining us. Oh well, look, thanks for having me, H. And look, if nothing else, it was just great to catch up. You know, like I miss I miss my office next door neighbor. You know, so that's right. We need to take it on the road. We're going to do our own <laughs> joint podcast. This is going to be good. We will, yeah, we will entertain rooms of dozens. That's right. That's right. At least half of the baker's dozen. Maybe. <laughs> um, that's it for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Please join us for future episodes featuring production company, CEOs like Jimmy, producers, writers, and more. Our theme music for this episode was composed by Hustle Up member Lewis Robert King. And we'll be featuring different themes from other Hustle Up composers in future episodes. If you like what you hear, please let us know. Thanks for listening and let's hustle up. Hustle Up.